coming week, February 7th through 14th, is being called National Marriage Week. National Marriage Week by a number of marriage organizations throughout the country. And uh, so uh, we've been busy in our community, and I'll, ju- I'll just say it here, we've been busy uh, trying to encourage churches and people to think of ways you can celebrate and highlight healthy marriages. We believe marriage, and I know you do too, marriage is, 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 uh, is, is under attack these days in our country. But marriage, let me tell you something, marriage was the first social institution created by God. Not only was it the first social institution created by God, but think of this, it was the only social institution created before sin entered the world. Marriage and family. If I had time, I teach sociology. If I had time, I'd talk more about this because you could build a case that every other social institution came as a result of sin. Government. Education. The church, a result of sin. The church is called the ecclesia, right? The called out ones. Called out from what? Well, there, we, there was the fall. We've been called out. Now, it's the result of sin. The only institution that God created before the fall, a social institution, was marriage and the family. Man, it must matter a lot to God. That was the way He designed us to live in community. And so, I just say that to say, oh, I would encourage you to consider, uh, join, join the bandwagon. There's a lot of places around America today that, uh, or this coming week that are going to be celebrating National Marriage Week. Well, it's great to be with you. I thank you for inviting me to join you for your Sunday school rally. I'm honored and humbled by your invitation. I, I must confess that I, I find this task just a little bit daunting, uh, because frankly, I don't think many of us would claim to be experts when it comes to doing what we do in Sunday school. And that would certainly be true of me. I don't claim to be an expert. Uh, most of the people that I've talked with, uh, when it comes to Sunday school, most of us get our arms twisted for the job. If we, if we look back to when we started, I appreciated that testimony. But, you know, you look back, most of us probably got our arms twisted along the way. And usually at some point along that way, we make a lot of disclaimers and say, well, I, you know, you just need to understand that I'm not particularly qualified for the task, but I'm doing my best. Most of us experience a number of frustrations and, and perhaps even some degree of burnout along the way. And I suspect most of us find ourselves appointed until the Lord comes. Is that true? Is that true for you like it is for me? I mean, if you're willing to do it, God bless you until the Lord comes back. You're it. And I've yet to meet a Sunday school teacher who's not for term limits. You know, we've got politicians who can't figure this out, but Sunday school teachers haven't figured out. We're for term limits, okay, when it comes to teaching Sunday school. But the reality is I think sometimes we do stumble across something that seems to work and seems to connect with others in the process. And when that happens, most of us can only stand back and say, well, to God be the glory, great things he has done. With that in mind, rather than pretending like I have a list of secrets here for Sunday school, I'd like to do three things this evening. I'd like, first of all, to share a little bit about myself with you. Secondly, I want us to take a look for a few moments at Scripture. And thirdly, I'd like to conclude with a few thoughts on what I have learned as a fellow Sunday school teacher. 
not someone with the answers, but as a fellow Sunday school teacher, what I've learned over the last few years in this process. Well, let me start by telling you just a little bit about myself. I grew up in a sister holiness denomination, um, the Free Methodist Church in central Michigan. I was one of four children and was actually of, of the four, uh, the four of us, I was the third, but I was the middle child between two deaf siblings. Therefore, much of my life, involved sign language, revolved around the use of sign language and, and the deaf world. After I was ordained, I became an ordained minister in the Free Methodist Church, I became a pastor of a deaf congregation way out in the northwest in the state of Oregon. Now, I've heard some pastors say they think their congregation is deaf, but I tell you, mine really was, okay? And there is a difference. So I, I, I've heard that pastoral talk, being a, being a minister, but mine really was deaf, and so I would stand up every Sunday, and it was all in sign language. In fact, my wife used to be my interpreter. I would sign. I wouldn't use my mouth. I would sign, and she would speak for those who couldn't understand sign language. And that's what we did for, for approximately 10 years. Um, a, little, a, a little other, maybe, I think, important part about me was uh, back before that time, I was actually the product of the 1970 Asbury Revival. Uh, I was not at Asbury at that time. I was a 15-year-old teenager. But many of you know the story of the 70 revival, you know, back now 40 years ago. But as students fanned out from that college, many of them went, I know, preferred the story, being at Olivet now. They came to Olivet. They went to churches. Some of the students came to my church up in Michigan. That made an indelible impression on this 15-year-old kid, and I'll tell you why. The night some Asbury students came to my church. My mom was home. You see, she wouldn't go to church much anymore. My dad took us kids. My mom wouldn't go. She was home that night. And when revival came, and it did come, the Holy Spirit came into that little church. We didn't get home till about midnight that night because of God's movement. When we got home, I went home to a new mom. You say, I, I thought she wasn't there. She wasn't. She didn't know what was going on. She told us when we got home, she met us at the door, and she said, before we could even speak, she said, I don't know what happened to you, but I'm going to tell you what happened to me. She said, I started to go to bed, but I couldn't go to sleep. And with tears coming down her face, I kid you not, she said, God came into that bedroom, and I had to get out of bed and kneel by the bedside, and I've given my heart to Jesus. And I tell you, as a 15-year-old kid, yeah. Praise be to God, okay? As a 15-year-old kid, that made an indelible impression that I will never forget, and I continue to give thanks to God for. My mom's still alive. My mom and dad, they still love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm thankful for that. A few months after that, we had a, we had a series of about two weeks where pastors couldn't even, I mean, excuse me, two weeks, two years, where the pastor couldn't even preach. I mean, things would happen. We, we had a man live next door to the church. His name was Mr. Wheatley. He was 72 years old. He never went to church. Never. I mean, he just didn't go to church. And, and somehow people in the church started praying for him. I don't, I don't remember. Again, I was a 15-year-old. People started praying for him. And one day, I just remember being in church. This was just a few months after that revival started. People started whispering, Mr. Wheatley's here. Mr. Wheatley's here. And you know what that man had the nerve to do? He had the nerve to come to the altar during the offertory. And give his heart to Jesus. It just messed up the whole service. You know, the preacher didn't preach. We didn't, I mean, it, it, the service just fell apart from there on. I mean, Mr. Wheatley was up here praying, 
And he did. He had an incredible conversion at age 72. A few months after that, a group of us in, in our youth group, we went down, wanted to share this good news. We went down. By now, I was 16. We went down to the hills of northern Georgia to, to, to continue sharing the news. We went down there. The third night we were there, a group of young people stopped by the church after the service. After the service, stopped by, wondered what we were doing there. And these were local, you know, Georgians there. And, and, and one of the fellows' name was Dash. His name was Dash because he was so slow. And, they, and so they called him Dash, you know. That's, that's the truth. That's how he got his name. His real name was Ed, but they called him Dash because he was just the opposite. You know, like you call someone bald, curly, you know, that idea. Okay, this was Dash. Dash Talley was drunk the night he came. He rode with a bunch of guys. They opened the door on the church parking lot there. Dash fell out of the car, and all his buddies were laughing at him. Dash, he was drunk. Couldn't even stand up. He said, I think I need Jesus. They laughed some more. And a buddy of mine, Hal Phillips, who was at that time older than me, a student at Asbury College, he said, I'm going to pray for you, Dash. He prayed for Dash. Dash accepted the Lord, stood up just as sober as you and I are here tonight. A few years later, Dash became my roommate at Asbury College. Today, he's a minister in Tennessee. Okay? I believe in revival. I believe in revival. I've seen God work. That was some of the experience I had during my teenage years. Well... I suppose then it's not surprising that when it came time to choose a college, I decided, I think I'll go to Asbury. I went down to Asbury College. A few years later, having a deep concern for the direction of our culture and its families, particularly the kind of world that I sense we are leaving to the next generation, I decided to go back after college to graduate school and studied sociology in hopes of teaching one day at a university like Olivet Nazarene University. And that happened in 1995 when Joe Nielsen gave me a call and, 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 and hired us to come and join the faculty there at Olivet. My family and I moved at that time across the country from Oregon to settle in Bourbonnais, Illinois, and I've been teaching sociology there ever since. It was about seven years after we were there that I was approached by someone at College Church, one of the pastors, and, and asked if I would consider teaching a Sunday school class. They said, we, we have a need for a young adult class, and we have a need for a senior adult class, and would you take one of those? I said, how about we just put them both together? Well, I don't think we can do that. I don't think that'd be a good idea. I said, well, let's just try it. Let's just try it. Let's just put them together. So we did, and, and I've been teaching ever since, and I'll have more to say about that. Uh, I, I, I suppose my, my beginning, though, in, in Sunday school, or not even my beginning, but I suppose these past few years of Sunday school, in a way, remind me of, of a story that I heard about Larry Walters. Maybe you know the story of Larry Walters. Larry Walters, 28 years ago, was living in Los Angeles, a suburb of Los Angeles, a 33-year-old truck driver. Larry had always wanted to fly. That had always been his dream. And he sat in his backyard one Saturday morning. True story, 1982 it happened. Looking up at the sky, watching the planes fly into to the L.A. Uh, International Airport. And, 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 and got an idea. He had always wanted to fly. So he got up from his aluminum lawn chair there and raced down to the Army surplus store and bought 45 weather balloons and some tanks of helium. Came home, called a few friends, had him come over and, and hatched his plan. 
He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fill up these 45 weather balloons. We're going to attach them to this aluminum lawn chair. And he says, then I want you to get a belt. And you strap me in. He says, I'm going to go for a little ride. I've always wanted to fly. So Larry, though, Larry thought of everything. Larry packed a, packed a little lunch. He had some sandwiches. He got some drinks. And Larry even grabbed his pellet gun because Larry had a plan. Larry thought he was going to float up to about 50 feet or so above, above the treetops there. He knew there were some ball fields just over this direction. He thought he was going to float. He, he checked the wind currents, he, and he was right on the wind current. He's like, he'd float over these ball fields and, and kind of take a look around, and when, he was, when he'd had enough, then he was going to start pumping his pellet gun and shooting those balloons, and he'd come floating down. And it'd be a nice little Saturday activity. Well, Larry got strapped in. And, uh, but, but, but when, and they had, they had the lawn chair all tethered, tied down to his Jeep there. And, and, uh, one thing though that Larry, Larry didn't think about was, you know, that, hey, 45 helium balloons, that, that, that's a lot of air, you know, that's a lot of, a lot of pressure. So when they untied him from the ground, Larry didn't go floating up. Larry went shooting up like out of a cannon. In his aluminum lawn chair that he bought down at Sears. And he went shooting up. He didn't, he didn't level out at 50 feet or 100 feet or even 1,000 feet. The record says that he ended up 16,000 feet in the air. Folks, that's three miles. You get dizzy. You can get dizzy in an airplane at that, that uh, you know, level. Larry got up there. And another thing Larry had failed to, failed to test before he went up was he failed to test whether that, that pellet gun would actually puncture those balloons. So he had a real problem. He had a real problem. I was telling this story, no kidding, I was telling this story at college church a couple summers ago when a woman came up after the service and said, I know just what you're talking about. My brother was in the Air Force and he was, he said, I'm not making this up, my brother was in the Air Force and had to respond to that emergency. Well, finally, they got Larry Walters down. They finally got him down. I, I mean, I, honestly, I don't know. I've read about it. I've heard the story. I've read about it. Uh, you, you can even find it online, so, uh, the, the story, okay? But no, this is a true story. And, and, and so I've read about it, but I don't know exactly how they got him down. You know, did the Air Force start shooting? I, I have no idea. I have no idea. But Larry did come down. Larry came down. When he came down, there was the uh, L.A. police force waiting for him because... Larry, unbeknownst to, you know, he checked the wind currents, but he failed to realize that when you get up high enough, those wind currents change. And Larry ended up flying over the LAX airport. And a Transworld Airlines flight and a Delta flight <laughs> spotted him out the window. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is Delta Flight 637 to the tower. If I'm not mistaken, I just passed a man in a lawn chair. We're cruising in at 16,000 feet. And I think he was pumping a pellet gun. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't know. You know? Just crazy. Well, yeah, so, so they finally got him down. They finally got him down. And there were reporters and police there. And he, he was fine and all and the reporters had three questions for him, and here they were. They asked three questions of, uh, of Larry, and the first question was this. And Larry had some profound answers. You don't believe me, do you? 
The first question was, what was it like? And he said, it was something. The second question was, would you do it again? And he said, "Uh uh-uh. And the third question was, why'd you do it in the first place? And he said, sometimes you just can't sit there. And I suppose that's how I got involved teaching Sunday school. Because sometimes you just can't sit there. And it's been really something, folks. God has done some amazing things. Well, yeah, Larry, Larry Walters. And sometimes those crazy experiences are the, are the things that, uh, well, I guess make the world turn, huh? Hey, I would like to draw your attention just briefly tonight to a passage of Scripture that you're all familiar with. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. I used this in Sunday school as we began the new year. Actually, to be honest, we're in the middle of a series on, uh, on Genesis. We're, we're looking at the end of Genesis in our Sunday school class these days and uh, talking about Joseph and forgiveness. But I, I like to wait and start those series when the students get back. So this was uh, January 3rd. Students had re- hadn't returned. So we took a little detour, if you will, and spent a couple Sundays in the Psalms. You know Psalm 1. It says, um, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. I'll stop there. I'm fascinated with this psalm for a number of reasons. First of all, I'm fascinated because of the way it begins. It begins with the word blessed. Blessed. Um, Only five psalms in the New International Version begin with the word blessed. In the King James, three other psalms are translated instead of praise. It's translated blessed. So five or eight psalms begin with that word blessed. That that catches my attention, especially, especially when you consider how the other early psalms begin. Let me just uh, just listen. Psalm 1 begins, blessed. That's the first word, blessed. Psalm 2 begins, why? Why do the nations conspire? I don't like this, Lord. Psalm 3 begins, oh, Lord. Yeah, I can relate to that. Psalm 4 begins, answer me. Psalm 5, give ear to my words. Psalm 6, O Lord. Psalm 7, O Lord. Psalm 8, O Lord. (laughs) Psalm 9, I'll praise you. Psalm 10, why? Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. Psalm 12, help. It's the first word. Psalm 12, help, Lord, for the godly are no more. It's a cry of desperation. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Psalm 16, keep me safe, O God. Hey, and we could go on. I'm glad Psalm 1 begins with blessed. 
It's a collection of psalms here, obviously, of songs and psalms. I'm glad the first word when we open this book is the word that says, blessed is the one, blessed is the individual. You see, I believe there's a message here, folks. God's desire is to bless. It's in his nature. His desire is to bless. How do we know that? Well, we know that because, uh, well, a, a number of reasons. When we look at other places in Scripture, for example, take the creation story. In the very creation, God looked out on creation that he had made, and, he, and it says he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. Oh, God said, this is so good. I want you to participate. I want to bless you as part of the creation. God looked at the Sabbath day, that seventh day after working for six days and said, hey, this is good. It's good to have a day like this. And he said he blessed that day. You go over a few chapters, God calls Abraham to follow him. And God looked at Abraham and said, Abraham, I am going to bless you and all nations of the earth because of you. And then, of course, we get to the Psalms. and there's By the way, let me just pause here. Do you know that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the book that has the word bless or blessing more than any other book, in fact, of the whole Bible, is the book of Psalms. The word blessing occurs 94 times in the book of the Psalms. It occurs the second most in all Scripture in the book of Genesis. 82 times you'll find the word blessing in Genesis. So there it is in Psalms. Oh, God, you know, we we sing. We sing of His blessings. But also, don't forget, there at creation, there was God. His desire, His design at the beginning was to bless His people. Do you know the, 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 the third most prevalent usage of blessing where it would be in the Bible? This might surprise you. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy. So you'll find blessing most often in Scripture in Psalms, second most often in Genesis, and third most often in Deuteronomy, tied to the law of God. Isn't that interesting? Oh, today we hear so many people say, oh, I'm so glad we don't have to worry about the law of God anymore. Hey, the law was intended as God's blessing, folks. God's blessing, God's way of living, God had designed. And so there we have it. Well, when you jump over to the New Testament, Jesus in his great Sermon on the Mount, you know, had this whole list of blessings. Oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Ah, you are blessed. You are blessed if you look to God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. The whole book begins with a blessing. And when you get to the end of that book, all this talk about heaven, you know what heaven is? It's a time of blessing. We read it in chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 22. Read it multiple times. Some, some of those references are from the very lips of Jesus himself. He said, blessed are those who have washed themselves and are pure and ready to enter heaven. God's desire, folks, is to bless. I'm awfully glad the psalm begins that way. Blessed is the one. Oh, blessed. Well, let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be blessed? Oh, we're all about blessing. Oh, God bless you. What does it mean to be blessed? Why don't you talk about it at your table for just a minute? What do you think it means? Tell someone or ask them. Ask the smart one at the table. What does it mean to be blessed? Go ahead, I'm going to ask for your input in a minute. 
Well, the discussion started with a bang, but it kind of quieted down, right? Okay. Let me, let me hear from a couple of you. What, what does it mean to be blessed? What, what do you think? We're among friends. We can, we can play it safe here. You know, we don't have to worry about... What, what, anyone got an idea? What does it mean to be blessed? Happy? Okay. What else? Excuse me? God knows your name. To be blessed means God knows your name. What else? Excuse me? Approval. Approval. Encouraged. To be encouraged. To be blessed. To be encouraged. Yeah. Go ahead. Favor. Favor. All right. Yeah. These are good, good descriptors here. Yeah, when you look up in a dictionary... You look up in Webster's Dictionary, and by the way, in this particular case, Webster's Dictionary and the original Hebrew aren't too far off. They pretty much agree. That's not always true, but in this case, they pretty much agree. Here's what you find. To be blessed means to find favor, to find approval, to be given pleasure. God's desire is to bless us. We often misunderstand that, I think. I mean, we say we, our, our, our culture, blessing, you know, that it has to do with, with, with the amount of capital we have, with the amount of goods we have. A blessing has, is to have God's smile of approval. God looks down and He says, oh, I'm so pleased with you. Oh, I favor you. Oh, I bless you. Blessed is the one, we read here. And it goes on to say some other things. I'm going to jump down to verse 3, and then I'll come back to these other verses. This passage that I quoted for you, blessed is the man, at the end of verse 3 concludes, whatever he does prospers. Whatever he does prospers. That word in the original is this very same word that's used of Joseph back in Genesis 39, And in the New International Version, it's the word success. God was with Joseph, yes, even when he was in prison in Egypt, and he gave him success. Remember, he was the warden who looked over the prisoners. God was with him and prospered him. God gave him success. It's the same word that's used of Joshua at the beginning of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, when God says, you're going to lead the people into this land, and I tell you what, if you'll follow my ways, if you'll follow my law, if you'll heed my commands, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you success. It's the same word that's used of Solomon when he was about to build the temple, and his aged father, David, looked at him and said, Solomon, if you will agree to obey God and walk with him, he will grant you success, First Chronicles 22. The word that's used here, whatever he does, prospers. It's the word that is often translated, he will give you success. You will be successful. Isn't it interesting? Psalm 1, 1 through 3, begins, blessed. Success. The first chapter of this great book of the Psalms. Right out of the box, right out of the chute, we're told God's desire 
and designed for you and me as followers of, 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 of the Lord. God's design is, look, he wants to bless us. He wants to make our lives a success. Well, how's that going to happen? Ah, there are some qualifications laid down here. Some qualifications. Let's look at them. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. An interesting verse there that has an important message. Sometimes it's the little words that mean the most. Don't overlook little words in your Bible study. The little word I'd like to point out is a three-letter word. Blessed is the man who does not. Who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Or stand in the way of sinners or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Blessed is the man who does not. I want to suggest something here, folks. This is a call to a life of distinction. There are some things, the psalmist is saying, there are some things that we ought not do. Now, it seems to me, I grew up, as I said, in a sister holiness denomination, and it seems to me in recent years we've kind of lost that sense of ever talking about the knots of life. Oh, don't go there. That's legalism only. All I know is I find it in my Bible. Blessed is a man who does not do some things. He does not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. He does not linger in the way of sinners. It's, you know, it says stand. Don't stand. When you stop, stand, aren't you lingering? You're standing. Don't listen to the ungodly. Don't linger in their ways. Worse yet, some sit in the seat of mockers or the scornful. That means you start living there. I think I'll just pull up a seat. I'll sit right here. And yet we read here, do not listen, do not linger, do not live where the ungodly live. Folks, that's some pretty strong words there. But there's a point to be heeded by all of us. If we want the blessing of God, it will happen because we live a life of distinction. A life of distinction. There ought to be ways that we will not talk. There ought to be ways we will not walk. There ought to be ways we will not dress. There ought to be ways we will not act. There ought to be things we will not watch. There ought to be things we will not do. There ought to be things we will not experience. There ought to be places we will not go. Things that we will not support. And yet we've lost that, I'm afraid. The knots of life. I'm reminded of a, of a friend of my father's, really. He's now passed on and gone to heaven. His name was Edsel Bedell. Edsel's granddaughter just graduated from Olivet last year. Some of you might know her. Rachel Bedell. Uh, Rachel Bedell's grandfather was Edsel, and he used to uh, help out my dad. My dad was a Christian used car salesman. Kind of an oxymoron. I know that. I know that. But I lived with a man, and I can vouch for him, okay? He, uh, he's, he's a good man. But, uh, yeah, 
One of the things he used to do is he used to, uh, he used to have Edsel, who was retired at this time, help him drive cars. You'd go to an auction, my dad would, and, you know, you buy a couple cars at the auction, you need someone to drive it home. So, so he'd have Edsel drive it home. Edsel was retired, and, and, and at this time of his life, Edsel was also suffering some with, with, uh, struggling with Parkinson's disease and, and, uh, some other issues, health issues. But my dad used to, uh, you know, uh, have Edsel help him, and my dad would often pull out, you know, he'd buy a car, and he'd say, Edsel, here's $20. Fill up with gas and, and, and bring it onto the parking lot. Edsel, you know, back to the car lot. And um, Edsel would do that, and then he'd, then he'd often just walk on home. He lived a mile or two, and Edsel would just walk home. And uh, at this point, he didn't even have his own car. So he'd just walk home, and, uh, and, and, and that would happen. Well, one day, my dad was telling me about Edsel. He said, uh, about 10 o'clock at night, my dad was already in bed, and he heard a knock on the door. It's persistent. Knocked again. So my dad went to the door, and it was Edsel. Edsel, what are you doing? He said, oh, Mr. Mr. Olney. He, had, he stuttered. Mr. Olney, he said, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to wake you up, but he said, uh, you gave me $20. He says, uh, I got a dime left over. And I, I, I just want to make sure you had it. I didn't want you to think I was taking it. And my dad said, Edsel, you woke me up for this? A dime? Keep the dime. I mean, I owe you more than that anyway. But, no, you see, Edsel wouldn't keep the dime because there were some things Edsel would not do. He would not stretch the truth. Not Edsel. Not Edsel. Folks, we need some Edsels in our world today, don't we? Some people who will say, I'm not going to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I'm not going to stand in the way of sinners. I'm not going to sit in the seat of the scornful. Yeah, you know, there will be some things I will not do because I am determined I want my life to be different. I'm going to live a life of distinction. The second thing I notice here is this. The psalm goes on to say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Ah, the writer is saying, those who receive the blessing of God are because they delight in His law. Delight in His Word. Let me just ask you a simple question. What is your delight? I mean, what do you really delight in? I remember when our youngest son, Luke, who's now a senior at Olivet, um, and uh, uh, Luke was a, a young boy, and, and uh, one day he came home from church. We were living out in Oregon at the time. I don't know. He was probably four or five. He said, you know, you know how y- y- your kids are when they're, they're young? He said... He said, Dad, and he was real pensive and thoughtful. He said, Dad, do men at church like football more than God? I said, why do you ask? I mean, I I didn't know where he was going. He said, well, whenever I'm around some of the people, and he mentions them, he says, they always just talk about football. Shut up, kid. Go to your room, you know? I mean, uh, uh, mean, whoa! Whoa! I probably shouldn't be saying that here in Colts country, should I? I mean, this, I'm sorry. I'll never be invited back again. I know that. That's pretty perceptive for a four or five-year-old. What do we delight in? What really grabs our heart? What is it? Oh, I'm so glad as I look back to my college years. I, I, I'm so glad that I went to a college where, where I can identify, and I know it was the same for me. I went to a college where my president, my college pastor, 
and a missionary friend of mine who became a missionary friend. She, she was a missionary to Columbia, South America. Her husband had just died. They'd been there for 30 years, but now she was working back on campus, and we became dear friends. Those three people loved the Word of God. I arrived on campus. I'd grown up in the church, but I, I you was know, so inexperienced and, and rather naive. I, I, had, I had a fire for God. I'd, I'd experienced the revival. I wanted to do something great. But you know what I noticed in those three lives? These were people who not only preached and taught the Word of God, they lived it. It mattered. They talked it. They, every day of the week, it was important to them. They delighted in the Word of God. Oh, we need to recapture that again. Their, their influence, I confess, got me started eventually keeping notebooks. This is just a new one I've started. I've been doing this for the last 25, 26 years. I don't know how you study the Bible, but when I study, I, I, I take about a chapter or a paragraph at a time, and I write down what God tells me. I don't, I don't think there's anything magical. There's no writing in the sky, but when God presses something on my heart, and I look at that passage, and I pause, and I read it, and I say, what's he saying to me? I've been doing that now for a number of years, and I owe it to those people who modeled their delight in the Word of God. And so today, as a professor at Olivet Nazarene University, I often will tell my students in sociology, I I, I tell them every year, every semester in the intro class, I tell them, look, if the only thing I've taught you is sociology, then I have failed you. And I mean that. I don't just say it for effect. I mean it. If the only thing I've taught you, I usually say at the end of that semester, if I've only taught you sociology, I've failed you. Because my desire, folks, is that you develop a hunger for this book. And how does that happen? Well, I begin each class with a time where we go through the scriptures. And in the intro to sociology class, we do a study of the book of Esther. I tell them there's a lot of good sociology in here. So let's take a look at it. But what happens is they begin to see how the Word can come alive. In my senior level class, we do a study of the book of Daniel. And I say there's a lot of good sociology in here. But they get a picture of the life of Daniel. I got accused last night from a student who said, you didn't tell them the other class you teach and what you're doing there. I teach a class on human sexuality. And we do a study of the Song of Songs. And I got accused last night from Kara. She said, you, you left that out on purpose. I said, I didn't leave it out on purpose. I just forgot. I didn't, didn't mention it. So we do a study of the Song of Songs. Now, I don't tell them that we're doing a Bible study, but that's really what it is. I just use four or five minutes at the beginning of each class. I just don't tell them. We're going to do a Bible study. I don't tell them that. We just, just let, me, let me read a passage, and then I'll comment on it. Because I want, I pray, I hope that our kids will develop a delight in the Word of God. It's the only thing that can change them. I mean, sociology isn't going to do it. Psychology isn't going to do it. Folks, we need a revival of this book. We need this book to become the delight once again of our lives. Oh, I am thrilled to be here with you. And I mean this because I don't know. Not that I would have improved all the other districts, but I don't know that other districts do what you're doing here. And when I hear people gathering because they're interested in Sunday school and this book, praise be to God. Oh, to delight in the Word of God. And the final thing that I see here is blessed is a man who lives a life of distinction. There are some knots in his life. 
He delights in the Word of God. And the third thing, he's like a tree planted by streams of living water that yield fruit in its season. A tree. What a metaphor. A tree is a metaphor for that which is sturdy and durable and dependable. Oh, good people, if we want the blessing of God, may He give us a good dose of tenacity to make us durable and dependable. I'm reminded of the story of Samuel Logan Brengel. Many of you know the name Samuel Logan Brengel. I I have read his uh, biography and I'm fascinated with it. He was uh, uh, one of the American, probably the chief, American leader of the Salvation Army, born back in 1860, and so for much of the last century led the Salvation Army in America. He, um, he, he tells a story of, of his joining the army. He was, he, I, part of the reason I'm fascinated with the story is the, the, the guy was raised in southern Illinois in a little town called Olney. You know why I might be interested in that? That's my namesake, okay? But, but uh, yeah, so he, he, he went to high school in Olney, Illinois, and then, and then came to Indiana and attended college at DePaul University. At the time, DePaul University was called Asbury College. He came to college here, then moved on to Boston to go to theological school. And while he was in Boston, at this time, Samuel Logan Brengel became a wonderful preacher. Wonderful orator, they said, in the late 1800s. Just a young man in his 20s, but boy, all the records said, boy, could that man preach. But he became fascinated with the Salvation Army while he was in Boston and decided to jump on a ship and head to England. He wanted to join the army, the Salvation Army. He went there to meet General Booth, and General Booth, when he first laid eyes on this young man in his 20s, Samuel Logan Brangle, remember, already a successful preacher back here in America, but it says, and I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to read a couple lines to you. But it says when, he laid, when Booth laid eyes on him, Booth says, you belong to a dangerous class. Brangle wondered, what, what do you mean you, I belong to a dangerous class? I'm a Christian minister. I've, I've come to join you. He says, you belong to a dangerous class because you've been your boss for so long that I fear you don't know how to obey orders. Boy, that cuts you down to size in a hurry, won't it? Well, General Booth decided to give him a chance. And Brangle said, oh, he was so excited to have his first assignment. He was sent to this little community called Lemington, got on the train, went to Lemington, and he says, I was starving, I'm quoting, I was starving for a chance to get at souls. He was a preacher. He'd come 3,000 miles across the ocean to preach he was going to save England. And the first assignment they gave him was in Lemington. And they sent him down in the cellar where there were 18 pairs of boots and said, Mr. Brangle, your job is to polish those boots. And he was crestfallen. He'd come to save souls. And he said as he started doing his work there, he started crying out to God, God, have I wasted my talents? Have I wasted my time? This is unfair. What am I doing here? I came 3,000 miles. I was preaching back in America. Now I'm here polishing. Then they called it blackening boots. Blackening boots. 
The next day came, they sent him down the cellar again. The next day, again. For one full week, that's all he did. But finally, he turned his eyes upward. And he said God began to speak. And he said he pictured God, Jesus, when he'd come with a towel, washing the disciples' feet. And he said, Lord, if you could do that, if you could leave heaven to do that, I could leave America to do this. And he said the following. He said, Dear Lord, you wash their feet, I will blacken their boots. And his biographer wrote this line. It's my favorite in the whole book. The biographer says, And with an enthusiasm heretofore unknown in the boot-blacking profession, Brangle tackled his job with a song on his lips and a peace in his heart. And years later, Brangle would say, I had fellowship with Jesus every morning for a week while down in that cellar blackening boots. It was the best training I could have had. My new prayer was, dear Lord, let me serve the servants of Jesus. That's sufficient for me. And do you know, that experience put a key in my hand to unlock the hearts of lowly people all around the world for the next 40 years. Why? Because Brengel found out what it meant to be dependable regardless of the task. To be durable. To be sturdy. To be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that gives forth fruit no matter what He is called to do. No matter what the season. Brengel discovered what it meant to be dependable. Folks, I want to suggest that God wants to bless you and me. He wants to express His favor. He wants to say, oh, I've got pleasures for you untold. And here's what you need to do. Live a life of distinction. Delight in His Word. And demonstrate yourself as dependable and durable in your witness and walk with Him. The Word of God. Let me close, as I said I would, by quickly, and I'll move through these quickly, suggesting some things that I've learned as a fellow Sunday school teacher. In all honesty, that's pretty much how I teach my Sunday school class. We take a look at the Word. And so the first thing I would say to you is this. As a fellow Sunday school teacher, the first thing I would say is this. Make the Word central. Make the Word central. Folks, I'm concerned today because there are too many substitutes taking place sometimes in our Sunday school classes. I was invited to be a guest Sunday school teacher a few years ago in a Nazarene church. I went there, prepared my lesson, walked into the room. It was was an adult class, about 30, 35 people there. And I said, well, we're going to look at such and such a passage. I don't remember what it was, but we look at such a passage. Take out your Bibles. One person had a Bible. Why? Because they had been used to just coming and do, do other things in Sunday school. Folks, 
we need to make this central. People aren't getting it anywhere else today. They're not getting it anywhere else. And I agree with what you said. People are hungry for the Word of God. So don't think, oh, there's a better creative approach. No, no, no. It's still the Word of God. Now, we may may need to be creative, and, and obviously we need to be winsome in how we do it. But, folks, it's the Word of God. Contrast that picture a few years ago, my wife and I took our, our, our teenage boys at that time back to Washington, D.C., where we had lived a couple of years, and we were visiting there, and, and on Sunday we attended Fourth Presbyterian Church, a church that we had attended for about a year when we were in graduate school back in the 1980s. We got there just as Sunday school was over. You know how you're out traveling, visiting, so we got there time for church, and Sunday school was over, and with the door we walked in happened to lead us right by the youth room. We didn't we kind of, oh, by the, and, and out of the youth room poured about 60, 70 young people. I mean, there was just a slew of them. And I tell you, as far as we could see, every one of them had the Bible under their arm. And we looked at each other and we said, here's a church, or here's a Sunday school class. They're teaching the Bible. These were young people. These were high schoolers. Every one of them had their Bibles. Folks, we need to make the Word central. In our class, the class that my wife and I teach together, we read it in large portions. Like right now we're doing Genesis, we'll read a whole chapter. We, we just finished chapter 41, and we'll divide it up and read it. But we read it from first, verse to, first word to the last word of that chapter. Then we'll go back and talk about it. We study books methodically rather than as a recipe, because I'm finding people do not know the Word. So rather than a recipe saying here, and we'll check back here, I mean, we do that sometimes. We'll look at a cross-reference of things, but we we do it methodically. Over the last eight years, we have studied 23 books of the Bible in their entirety, from verse 1 to the end of the book. And people are finding a new life and a new desire. And there are people, college students and professors and administrators and retired who now are coming to church. And, and, and a few years ago, I'm just telling you, a few years ago, I didn't always see them carrying a Bible. And I'm starting to look and I see, oh, they got their Bible with them because they know we're going to be looking at the Word of God. Folks, make it central. Make it central. Second, illustrate with relevant real-life stories. Illustrate with relevant real-life stories, whether it's something silly like Larry Walters, whether it's an Edsel Bedell, whether it's a Samuel Logan Brangle. That implies something. That implies we're going to need to read or observe. Have others help you with it. Clip articles. Save them. Build a file. And here's why that's so important. Real life stories, not abstractions, because research tells us that men in particular, yes, men, males, we tend to get things better when it comes to us in stories. We tend to get to, get to things better when it comes to us in stories. And we need real life stories it makes things come alive. Most of us, and, and, and I know as a professor now for 20-some years, I know when my students leave, they don't remember much of the little details I've given them, but they'll remember. there's two things they'll remember. They're going to remember how I've lived, and they're going to remember a story or two that was told along the way. And you know the same thing is true of you, and it was true of me, as I look back on my professors. A story or two. Illustrate with real-life stories. Thirdly, mix the generations whenever possible. 
Mix the generations whenever possible. I know you have to be realistic. I understand all that, but whenever possible. And here, and here's why. We we tried that in our class, and now I tell you, the people who come to our class, I'm just telling you, on past Sunday we had 70 in class, 70 uh, people in, in in our class, Sunday school, and and they they go from college age, 18, 19 year olds, to uh, we have a 90 year old. Actually, I think she's 92 or 93. Okay, that's the age range. And on most Sundays, on most Sundays, we have about a third of our class as college students. About a third is middle age, and middle age is growing all the time as, as I get older. I mean, middle age is now way up here. And, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then beyond middle age, whatever that age is, right, the retired, the seniors, about, about a third of the class. And that's about how it works. And to a person, the, I'm telling you, the college students and the seniors and the middle age, they say, the reason I come is for this very reason. The mixed generations. I have a woman there. Her name is Carol. She's been part of the Nazarene Church her whole life. She said, "Don't," and she's retired. You know, she's about seventy-five or so. She said, "Don't you go sticking me with those old people." So she tells me, "Don't you go sticking me with those old people." She says, I love a class where I can hear from the young people. And the young people are saying, man, I love a class. when It's like, it's like being home. I get to hear from elderly people. I'm at college all week. I hear from my peers. I know what they're doing. I want to know what the older folks are saying. And can I tell you that if we don't do it as the church, folks, I'm afraid there's not much mixing of the generations anymore in our world. Stop and think about it. Simon, think about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when many of us were kids, I mean, I think there was. There was more mixing, just an event. Nowadays, everything's age segregated from school to community events. Everything's age segregated. Sometimes even families, because they're torn apart, they're not getting this mix of, of, of the generations. Oh, if you can do it, I encourage you to consider at least some classes that are mixed generationally. Here's the fourth thing. Plan for interaction. Plan for interaction as much as possible. Plan for interaction. Ask questions. Get them involved. People love to tell their own stories. Sometimes we'll talk about a thing, and I'll say, you give me an illustration. Have you ever seen this? Hey, you tell me. Uh, I had even written down, but I didn't have time to do some of these. But I, I was going to ask, who do you know who delights in the Word of God? I mean, in your own life. I might not know, but do you know someone who comes to mind in your life? Someone who delights in the Word of God. And you get them talking. Get them interacting. Boy, you get a picture of their soul and who's influenced them. Yeah, plan for interaction. Fifth, challenge and apply. Challenge and apply. Another principle, just challenge and apply. I confess, I I, I have been a pastor, I've been a preacher, I've been a professor, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I get confused. Sometimes I don't know whether I'm preaching or I'm teaching. And my students will tell you that. I think you've gone to preaching now. Okay, well, I I don't know. I I just think, especially when we're dealing with God's word, I think there's always something to apply. I think there's it always challenges me. We need to not be afraid to present it as a challenge. Here's the sixth thing I would say. Laugh often. Laugh often. Oh, I love Psalm 126, too. That verse that says our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Our mouths are filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Get the next part. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord's done great things for them. 
Why? How do they know? They see their laughter. The laughter is a testimony. That was the people of Israel when they were coming back from captivity. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. And the people began saying, the Lord's done great things for them. How do you know? Listen to them laugh. Folks, we need to allow ourselves to laugh. And we need to encourage it in our Sunday school. I, I, I agree with Charles Swindoll who says it's a sin to make the gospel boring. Let's make sure we infuse a lot of laughter in what's going on. Seventh, I would say this, teach to your strength. Teach to your strength, Sunday school teacher. Teach to your strength. That means you've got to know what is your strength. For me, a few weeks ago, someone said, man, only, you know, you're, you, you come and you prepare these lessons. I wish you would outline that for us so we could have some take-home stuff. So I said, all right, after they badgered me for a few weeks, I decided I'd do it. So I started preparing. I'd go over Saturday to my office and prepare an outline. And, and, but here was the problem. That wasn't my strength. And don't misunderstand me. I'm a very organized person. It has nothing to do with that. But what I began noticing was this. After I would prepared the outline, I'd hand it out to the class, and then I felt tied to the outline. I, you, you know what that's like, some, some of you? You know, you, you think, oh, I've got this outline. And it, well, you haven't got the fourth point yet. What, what, oh, uh, it get me all mixed, messed up. I, I tried it for about four weeks, and finally I announced to my class, forget the outlines, we're not doing outlines anymore. Okay, if you want an outline, you can have someone else teach you. And I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't being smart. I just say, you know, when someone else is teaching, they can do the outline. But for me, I'm sorry, I just, that's just not my strength. It's not, okay. I'm just saying that as an illustration. Teach to your strength. There's always a danger. And I mean, it's good to, to watch and learn from others. But there's also a danger because we think, oh, I'm going to be like that person. I'm going to be like that. Teach to your strength. What is it that inspires you and makes you come alive? Do it that way. Some people, some people are great at just facilitating a discussion. Some people are great at, at giving a challenge. So teach to your strength. And here's the final thing I would say. These are, these are things I've learned as a Sunday school teacher. The final thing is right here. Live it. Live it between Sundays. Live it between Sundays. At home, in the workplace, in the classroom, wherever you are, live it between Sundays. The greatest compliment I've ever received about my Sunday school class was not given through words. But it was when my two sons, age 25 and 22, both said, Dad, we want to come to your class. And they started telling their friends about the class. And now they attend regularly. That's the greatest compliment I ever received. Why? I think, I think it's because they want to be there. They, they, they see the laughter. They're learning the word. They're enjoying the mix of the generations. I hope it's also because they see a consistency in what happens Sunday and what happens at home during the week. Folks, people are watching us. They're watching us. And if we have a position in the church, they're watching us. May we live it. Hey, let me close this way. You know, back to that Psalm 1, blessed is the man. I think I've been blessed. I get to teach the Word of God. And so do you. I get to watch my sons enjoy the study 
and application of his word. I get about 70 or so accountability partners who watch every move I make because they want to know if I'm living what I'm teaching. I get to be a Sunday school teacher. I'm blessed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening that we've been able to share together. We take you at your word. You desire to bless us, and we thank you. But if we are to get your full blessing, you've also called us to live lives of distinction, to delight in your word, and to demonstrate a dependability and durability regardless of the task you call us to. Help us so to live. Restore our passion for your word. Restore our Sunday schools. Restore our witness. Restore our churches. May the churches and leaders of this district experience your blessing in fresh ways this year of 2010. Make us wise and winsome witnesses in this world, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for letting me come and be with you.